I'll invite you to turn with me again to the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and we're going to look at verses 10 uh, to 17. So we're finishing up chapter 8. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 10 says this. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before the Lord. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. It's been said, I think, by many different people uh, that sin over-promises and under-delivers. Sin promises much to people that it just simply in the end cannot and will not ultimately deliver. And I think this is true. I think it is most maybe obviously and clearly seen if you consider the first sin, if you consider Adam and Eve. Satan's lie promised a lot to them, that they would be like God in an even greater way than they were already made in his image and likeness, but in an even greater way they would be like him, equal to him. But of course we know the result of their eating of the fruit plunged the world into sin and utter misery brought about this Ecclesiastes frustration uh, existence that we know that many have lived. Sin over-promises and under-delivers. However, the effects and the consequences of sin are not always seen or felt immediately. It's not always as drastic and obvious as in the case of Adam and Eve. Again, their eyes were opened right away. They knew their shame suddenly. They sought to hide from God and they were quickly banished from the Garden of Eden. But it's not always as as obvious as that, the consequences. They don't always set in right away. And so there are times when it appears to man like the life of wickedness might be worth it. It might pay off. Do we not 
often see wicked people prospering, enjoying themselves, seemingly having a great time with authority and power over others. And so man is lured into evil as evil as sin makes great boasts and promises. Ecclesiastes, as you know, does not hesitate to acknowledge these types of frustrations that are a part of life under the sun. We've seen this over and over. Um, But the book is not simply here to just remind us at how frustrating life can be with no other greater purpose. It's also here to maybe shake us out of complacency or what we might be trying to avoid looking at with realistic eyes. It is also here to give us a heart of wisdom, to give God's people wisdom in navigating life in this world that is often so very frustrating and vexing. And the text that we've just read that we're looking at today has important truths that expose the fool's bargain that is a life of wickedness. In the end, it simply does not, will not, cannot pay off. And this text also then uh, points us in a better direction, sets us on a better path. So our outline as we work through this uh, this morning, we're going to look first at the vanity of wickedness in verses 10 to 13. Then we're going to see the lack of earthly justice in verse 14. And then the response of God-fearers in verses 15 to 17. So first, we'll look at the vanity of wickedness. If you remember from last time, in verse 9, Solomon was considering the oppressiveness of man, how when man has power over another man to his harm. Men having authority, power, and using that to hurt their fellow men. He's been considering the power of kings and others to accomplish this. And then in verse 10, something strikes him. He says, then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things, where they had done their evil. This also is vanity. So Solomon notices as he's considering this matter of oppression that ultimately he's looking at how the wicked are also buried. Perhaps he was considering somebody that he knew personally or knew of. Regardless, once again, it is the reality of death that brings much-needed perspective. He says of the wicked that were buried that they used to go in and out of the holy place. Uh, some, like Martin Luther, took this to mean that he is probably referring to the priests. The priests themselves going in and out of the temple themselves were these wicked people. That's entirely possible. But even if that's not the case, they were clearly not hindered from entering the holy place. Which would point to a corruption in religion. If these openly wicked men are able to just kind of come and go and worship as if it's no big deal. The holy place, probably a reference to the temple, possibly more broadly Jerusalem. So these wicked people or person, these folks he sees that are wicked, that they're buried, they're not simply a couple of obscure back alley criminals 
They had some measure of approval and some measure of freedom while they lived to come and to go, even from the holy place. The ESV says that they were praised in the city where they had committed their evil. So it's quite possible he's seeing the wicked buried and they're being eulogized when they simply should not be. Uh, we've seen this many times when wicked dictators pass and others praise them. There is a, a challenge in the text with the wording, uh, with the word for praised. And if you have the ESV, I think it draws attention to it there. Uh, some of the Hebrew manuscripts and uh, the Septuagint, for example, use this word praised, but most of the manuscripts have this word forgotten. They say forgotten instead. That seems like such a drastic difference to us, but in Hebrew, it's just um, part of one letter that makes the difference between the two. So you can understand how, as scribes copied this, such a thing could, could change. Again, I just draw your attention to the fact that your English translation is pointing that out to you, a good English translation. They're not trying to hide it. They're trying to tip you off so you could do further study on such a matter if you desired. Both words, praised or forgotten, either one could work in context. But it seems that forgotten is perhaps better, especially given its dominance in the manuscripts. In which case, it seems that what Solomon is getting at here is that the vanity of wickedness is revealed by the fact that even though these men once seemed to have it all, they had some measure of power, they accomplished and did wicked deeds. They were free to come and go, even into the holy place, it says. Nevertheless, their time to die came, and they were then forgotten. As with basically all men, even the prominent wicked are typically forgotten shortly after they die. The world just moves on. If you remember back to the very beginning of Ecclesiastes, you have generations coming and generations going. Eventually, death will catch up with the wicked. And then what becomes of all that they've supposedly gained in this lifetime? All their power and authority, then what? Death comes. Moreover, what Solomon will go on to say, to imply here, is that judgment awaits these wicked men. And so in the end, and we'll see that more in just a moment, and in the end, wickedness simply will not pay. In verse 11, he gives one reason why wickedness is so prevalent. He says, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the, of chi of the children of man is fully set to do evil. If God were to execute judgment immediately upon sin, if there was instant justice for evil activity, it would be more restrained. But the wicked often get lots of time to live out their lives, again, as we'll see even clearer as we get into verse 14. And so man, in his sinful nature, seizes upon this and runs headlong into wickedness. The idea that there is a reckoning to come, a divine judgment to come, 
you know, is mocked by most today. They think it's not going to happen. It's a silly idea. God, even if he did exist, surely wouldn't care about the affairs of men, certainly not to any sort of minute detail. Again, you you say, you know, you believe that Christ is returning, yet he's still not here. Even in the time the New Testament was being written, Peter writes about how those were, some were mocking. Where is the promise of his coming? He's not yet returned. Mankind sees this and feels freedom to just rush off into sin. They will not be found out. Notice the depravity that is stated here. Uh, Solomon does not pull his punches here when he talks about the condition of man's heart. The heart of the children of man, he says, is fully set to do evil. But is this, is this how we think of mankind? Well, this is the Bible's description of the sinful human condition, the heart of man. But around us, of course, this is not how the majority of people would consider and think of human beings. Man is not evil. Man is basically good. It is systems that ultimately corrupt man's otherwise very good heart. What Solomon says here is a reminder of, of God's judgment, of his words, his verdict on man, even after the flood. If you remember the flood in Genesis, in which... God destroyed the earth because of mankind's sin, and yet when the flood subsided, he noted that this hadn't fixed the problem of human sinfulness, saying that it was the the intention of man's heart is only evil from his youth. Man is sinful, and when man sees that He's going to get away with evil or believes he will get away with evil. He jumps further into it. I remember hearing, I I can't remember the details or where exactly I heard it, but of a poll uh, a number of years ago now, people being asked if if they knew for a fact they could get away with stealing a million dollars. It's guaranteed up front. You will not be held to account. You'll get away with it if you could steal a million dollars. And the majority of people that were questioned said they would do it. That's this idea. It's not gonna, justice is not going to come. Then we'll do evil. The Solomon shows here the folly of this kind of thinking. Verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. Underlying these verses is an understanding that after death comes judgment. This is why Solomon can say that it will be well for those who fear God and why he can say that ultimately it will not be well with the wicked. In verse 12, he acknowledges that the sinner might prolong his earthly life in his sinning. He might live longer than the righteous even. But in the end, 
It will not be well with him, such that he says, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow. Of course, as the day, as the sun goes down, a shadow lengthens. So interestingly, he says on the one hand, they might prolong their days. And then he says, ultimately, they will not prolong their days. And that can seem confusing. I think what he's saying is ultimately, yes, a wicked person might extend earthly days as they connive and weasel and get through and get to the top and whatever else. But ultimately, he will be destroyed. He will be judged by God. He will encounter what the Bible refers to as the second death. Solomon isn't, doesn't elaborate on all of this here, but clearly understands an afterlife here, something of it. That it will, after death, be well for God-fearers, whereas the wicked will face his judgment. That's the only way this, what he's saying here, makes sense. So what is needed is to expand our horizons beyond life under the sun. And it is here that the vanity of wickedness is most clearly seen. In the end, it just simply does not pay. Psalm 73.1, it's a psalm of Asaph, Psalm 73. And it begins this way. He says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wickedness. He says he was almost dashed. He was almost ruined as he looked out and saw the prosperity of these arrogant, wicked people, he almost rushed in to join them because of how attractive it seems. And he goes through in Psalm 73 to outline some of the things that he saw happening for the wicked and the good things they seem to be able to encounter. He says that he was thinking this way. He was being lured into this way. Verse 17, until I went into the sanctuary of God, Then I discerned their end. He discerned their end, the final end of how this would all work out for these prosperous wicked. God's final judgment is not yet in. It has not yet come. And Asaph recognized that if he had followed that line of thinking and joined the arrogant, he would have betrayed all of the faithful men and women who'd gone before him. God's judgment will come. This is the testimony of Scripture over and over again. This is what we must understand. We must remember. We must believe. Nothing escapes the eyes of Almighty God. And one day, all men and women will be held to account. It might seem delayed, but it is a sure thing. Our eternal God is perfectly on time. Notice the two types of people mentioned in these verses. You have the wicked on the one hand and you have those who fear God on the other hand. And those who will do well at the judgment, Solomon is telling us, are those who fear God. They will, he kind of repeats it. He says they will do well because they fear before him. Last week we talked a little about the fear of the Lord and how it involves a recognition of God's greatness his awesomeness, his righteousness. 
there's some understanding in the God-fear of the infinite nature of God, that he is completely other than creation. Nothing in creation can image him. This is why we're not to have graven images, because it will fall well short of describing anything close to what he is. There is no image of him that will work out. And so the God-fearer is aware of God's greatness, but also of his own finiteness, and moreover, his own unholiness, his own failure in light of God's perfection, in light of God's law. And the one who truly fears the Lord then looks to God for mercy, looks to him for grace, knowing there's nothing that I can do in order to make up for my unholiness before the holy creator of all. And so the one who would fear God would look to God for his covering, for his provision of your sin. And in the time of Solomon, in the time of Ecclesiastes, the God-fearers were looking to God, looking ahead to when he would send a savior, when he would send this Messiah king, the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, who would forgive sin and put an end to the curse that sin has brought about to the earth. And of course, the Savior has come, the Lord Jesus Christ. He has purchased pardon for sinners. He is the Lamb that God has provided as a covering for our sins. He has died for sinners. He has risen again from the dead. And he has secured righteousness that lowly sinners desperately need and do not possess. And the God-fearer then receives this righteousness and forgiveness of sins with empty hands with no work or no nothing in ourselves to merit any of it. It is a gift of God's grace. It is received empty-handedly by faith, by believing. Solomon says of God-fearers, he says in an interesting way, he says they fear before him. This is contrast to the wicked. The wicked look out and see judgment delayed and they think, God's not looking. If he is, he clearly doesn't care. And so we'll just rush off. We'll set, set our hearts on further evil. In contrast, the one who fears God fears before him. That, or they, or if they fear before his face. That is in his presence. The God-fearer is aware that he lives his life before God in his presence. Again, the wicked thinks he's scot-free and can do as he pleases, but the God-fearer knows better and so lives in a humbled awareness of the omniscient and omnipresent Almighty God. It is entirely possible that some of you here today might be very acutely feeling lured by sin, might be experiencing strong temptation to live a life of sin, perhaps even to abandon altogether the pretense of faith, perhaps even young people being reared in church, being reared by Christian parents, nevertheless feel the strong pull of the world all around you 
and perhaps even giving consideration to abandoning again Christianity altogether. But it's not just young people, obviously. It can be anybody. The worldly lifestyle seems to promise us much. In fact, it doesn't seem to. It does promise much. Things will go well with you. Societies, elites, whoever it might be, they'll treat you well if you would go along. You will no longer have to battle with your flesh, wrestle with temptation, deny yourself. You can just give into it. It's a lot easier, is it not? You'll receive the praise of man, in fact. Fewer as heroic as Christians who would, or those who were professing Christians who then deconstruct their faith and walk away from it. You could be a hero in the eyes of many in the world. The world promises much. Sin seems to promise much. If you walk down that path, it will not pay off for you. In fact, even within this lifetime, it may very well begin to bear bear its ill fruit in your life. This is the way it is for many who give over to sin. Many who would even appear to be on top of the world and joyful, but who nevertheless are not. I, I remember recently listening to an account of the death of Joseph Stalin and then, and then reading about it again this week a little bit. This, this was one of the most powerful men on the planet, possibly to ever live. Also one of the most wicked men, authorizing the death of, of thousands personally and, and perhaps millions by his various policies and so on. And at his deathbed, even his closest friends around him were terrified of him, suspecting that if he lived much longer, they too would become victims of his murder squads. And his daughter recounts his death, and he couldn't speak, but she recounts what she describes as terror in his eyes as his days were, as his life was expiring. And he lifts his hands and he points at all these people, doctors in the room and all these people around him, including his daughter. She says, as if he was cursing them all as he breathed out his last breath. This is a man who is literally pretty, well, he's pretty darn close to being on top of the world. Certainly an oppressor of other men and given over to the promises of wickedness. But even in his own life, it bore much ill fruit and he died in misery and essentially alone and hated by those closest to him. Very often, sin simply bears its ill fruit even in this own lifetime. But let's just say for a moment, you do enjoy your sin throughout your lifetime. And let's say for a moment, it doesn't swallow you up, but you live a long life in your evil. Things do seem to go well with you. Remember what Solomon is telling you here. Remember what God's word is revealing to you here throughout Ecclesiastes that life is in fact a breath. Even 90 years is nothing. How fast it goes by. That seems so impossible to us. Especially if you're young. Uh, 30 minutes can seem like an eternity at times. Driving to Weyburn from the city 
can seem like an eternity at times. But ask anyone who is older around you at how fast that has happened. One day your time will run out, whether it's sooner or later, and you will face the Almighty and there will be a reckoning. The life of wickedness is a fool's bargain. Do not be persuaded by this. Hear this warning. And it is a kind warning that God would correct us on this. That he would over and over throughout scriptures make this clear to us. That we would be ready. Fear before the Lord. Repent of your sin. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Live by faith. And all of us, let us renew an eternal mindset, looking beyond the promises of this earth, this world, the shiny objects around us, out into eternity. So we're reminded of here the vanity of wickedness. But as we move into verse 14, Solomon is not done contrasting the earthly lives of the wicked and the righteous as he draws our attention to the lack of earthly justice, the lack of earthly justice. Again, eventually, there will be justice and wickedness will be shown to have been not worth it. Nevertheless, it continues to exist in life under the sun. Justice still proves to be elusive. Verse 14, there is a vanity that takes place on earth. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. You feel the torment of what he's saying there. You've seen this yourself. You hear of God-fearing people who go through all kinds of tremendous adversity and trial. And wicked people who appear to just kind of float through life and rise to the top. This plays out all too often on earth. And Solomon, this isn't the first time he's voiced this frustration in Ecclesiastes. He did this back in chapter 7, verse 15, for example. And it's not just death. In, in chapter 7, verse 15, he, he says that uh, there that um, sometimes the righteous man perishes in his righteousness and the wicked man prolongs his life and his evil doing. But it's not just life and death. Again, the righteous often suffer various types of hardships. You think of Job, for example. We think we see righteous people, God-fearing folks who endure such hardship that we think, well, that would make sense if, if a wicked person had to endure that. It seems like that would be an appropriate punishment, an appropriate divine retribution for evil. And yet it's happening to one of God's people. It is good, of course, to keep our eyes set on final judgment. I think what Solomon's doing here is showing us that we, reminding us we still live in this world now. And the vexing reality is that the wicked often do still thrive and the righteous often still do suffer. And it all 
is backwards to the way it ought to be. This is life under the sun. This is life in a sin-cursed world. Again, we think if a a righteous person suffers, how much more ought the wicked to suffer? Or if the wicked prosper, how much more ought the righteous to prosper? And yet that's not how it works. And this reality uh, is something that um, John Calvin's successor in Geneva, Theodore Beza, called a, he called this reality repugnant to reason. This is a, a disturbing thought, a disturbing reality. Looking out to eternity, considering final judgment, certainly provides us with some relief, helps us to endure, to know that ultimately there will be justice, but it doesn't exactly remove every frustration. It's still difficult to endure hardship and grievous to watch things unfold in this way, where wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. To live life under the sun in this fallen world still presents vexations. And this prompts throughout the scriptures this question of how long, Lord? Psalm 94, 3, how long shall the wicked exalt? In Revelation chapter 6, martyrs are crying out the same kind of thing. How long, O Lord? They're crying for vengeance, for justice to finally take place. Again, Ecclesiastes isn't trying to gloss over matters. As if the consideration of final judgment simply removes all distress or answers every why question. And so as we come to verse 15, we get to the response of God-fearers. The response of God-fearers. How do we proceed? How do we endure the days of our lives here? Yes, we know that eventually there will be judgment. Does that just mean that all of this is just, what do we do? We just live in frustration? Anger. Of course, I think the Bible has a lot to say about life under the sun, about how we live, what's appropriate. There are many things we could consider, but Solomon points us to at least two things here. Two basic answers from the remaining verses, neither of which are new concepts in Ecclesiastes. The first thing is to joyfully receive the good things that God gives you. He returns to this, verse 15, And I commend joy, for man is nothing better under the sun, but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. Once again, Solomon is pointing us to the goodness of enjoying the good things that God provides. such as we have the ability to do so. He has said this a number of times already. He's going to say it again in chapter 9. We might think that enjoying one's food and drink and toil are of no significance at all. They're too menial to be meaningful. Given all that's going on in the world and all the difficulties, unless we are revolutionaries starting some movement or doing something radical out in the world, surely it's not appropriate to just sit down and enjoy a meal. 
There's better things we ought to be doing. I think many of us live with that sense constantly. There's more we ought to be doing. We need to be doing other things. And it can be difficult to just maintain your presence with your family or at your workplace or whatever it might be. And yet these are not things that are belittled in God's eyes, but good things he's given you to do with joy as you're able. As it turns out, in Solomon's eyes, joy is not impossible despite all the genuine hardships that he's already just described. Verse 15, I commend joy. It is a good thing. It seems like such an odd thing to say right after verse 14. This frustrating, wicked, getting good things in life, righteous people suffering, and then I commend joy. We want him to tell us more that we can do to fix the situation. And he's pointing you back to joy. He's pointing you back to the good things God's given you, the food you eat, and so on. Some of you have a very joyful, maybe naturally cheery disposition. The Bible also speaks of a joy that is a fruit of the Spirit. A biblical joy that is able to transcend present circumstances. A joy that isn't dependent on the moment. It's not dependent on everything working out really well. It's not dependent on living in a world where perfect justice is always enacted. It isn't dependent on a world where we are promised that everything is going to just work out perfectly as you like it. It is a joy, it is a joy that is rooted in God, in his goodness towards you, his eternal goodness towards you, the kindness he has shown to you. The fact that the worst that comes to you this life is not the worst that you or I deserve. That we have been saved from tremendous depths of sinfulness. To be made children of God, to be given an eternal inheritance. This is something we maintain even if the physical world around us completely crumbles. We're told that this is a fruit of the Spirit. It is something that true believers indwelt with the Spirit possess in measure, but can also grow in. And though it might seem counterintuitive at first, remembering what Solomon has just talked about can help us grow in our joy. That though much is inexplainable in this earth, though there is much injustice all around us, and you might fall victim to it, you might fall victim to various types of natural suffering and disaster. Nevertheless, there is a coming a day when wickedness will be exposed and judged. There is a coming a day in which those who fear the Lord will have things truly go well with them. And this can and does take some of the sting out of life under the sun and brings a genuine contentment and joy before God even as trials come. 
knowing, for example, that your eternity is secured in Christ. It is a joy knowing that vengeance and judgment are the Lord's, and they're in His very good, very capable, all-knowing, all-powerful hands. So I would encourage you to try to root yourself in this as truly it is perplexing days we live in. Frustrating. To pursue joy. To seek enjoyment of the good things that God has given you. Simple things like here, eating, sitting down with your family to eat, to, to fight off that sense that there's something else that's maybe more significant that you ought to be doing. We see a second response here for God fears in verses 16 and 17. And that is that we are to trust the vexing and frustration matters to God whose ways are beyond ours. The specific things we face, we may not understand. The way that God's working in the world, we're not going to come to a complete and ultimate grasp of it all. And we have no choice but to trust these things to the Lord. Verse 16, When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Solomon reminds us here of the quest that he's on. He's seeking understanding. He desired to know wisdom, to behold, to look at man's continual activity, his business on earth, such that man loses sleep because of stress and busyness and concerns. And he knows, he acknowledges here that behind all of this is really the work of God who ultimately retains his sovereignty over all of this. And he's trying to find out the work that is done under the sun. If you remember from a couple weeks ago, to find means to understand. He's trying to comprehend these things. We saw that in chapter 7, verse 27. He wants to put it all together, understand God's ways. This God who allows, permits, part of his decrees that unrighteous men might prosper while some wicked might suffer. This God who could certainly change it all in a heartbeat, who could end it all right now, and yet hasn't, doesn't. It's a very understandable thing for a wise man to want to try to get his head around, to want to try to comprehend. It's a valuable pursuit for him. And yet his conclusion is, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. There are secret things that belong to God and only to God. He has revealed certain things to us that are very clear, as he told Moses and the Israelites in Deuteronomy 29, there are secret things that belong to God. 
Not every why question will have a satisfying answer to us. Throughout the Bible, the people of God have been taught to entrust all of this to the God who is truly good, who is truly wise, and truly, ultimately, beyond our comprehension. The God who exists outside of time. It is this God that we're called upon to trust. This God who has a perfect handle on it all. We truly will not understand all of his ways, all of his works. This is not an embarrassment to the authors of the Bible because they recognize they're talking about and grasping something of an infinite being that is completely other than anything else. And so it is right that as creatures, finite, fallen, sinful, we wouldn't grasp everything that God does. Recall with Job, God never does explain himself to Job. He doesn't satisfactorily explain why each thing occurred to Job. He basically reminds Job of who he was and of how small Job is, and that's enough for Job to shut his mouth and repent in dust and ashes, he says. Similar, but a little different, Habakkuk complains to God about the wicked surrounding the righteous in his days and those who've perverted justice. And God says he will deal with it, and he's going to do so by sending, raising up the Babylonians to come and conquer Israel. And you see the absolute perplexity of Habakkuk as he responds to that. He can't fathom the fact that God would send a far more wicked, far more evil nation to as an answer to this problem of wickedness. He can't hardly get his head around it. And God assures Habakkuk that Babylon too will have their day of judgment. But he doesn't justify himself to Habakkuk. He doesn't explain everything that would satis- in a way that would perfectly satisfy his curiosity, but calls Habakkuk to trust him because of who he is. To live by faith. And the thought of the impending invasion to Habakkuk, he says, was like rottenness entering my bones. Yet, he declared that he would wait quietly, stop his grumbling and complaining to God. He would wait the invasion of Babylon and he would worship God even if the crops completely failed or were stripped because of this war that would come even though all their livestock would fail and not produce or be destroyed or captured, he would nevertheless worship the Almighty. Philip Ryken writes, Some people expect to have all the answers, and when they fail to find them, they get angry with God about what is happening or not happening in their lives. It is wiser for us humbly to admit that we are finite beings with fallen minds and that therefore we are incapable of understanding everything that happens. This is what the Bible is telling us. Just as we close, Solomon, of course, is writing this book under the Old Covenant. And we know that these two responses he gives of of what God-fearing people can focus on and do as we live life under the sun is not exhaustive. And so I would just add that Part of our response as a church 
on this side of Christ's coming, on this side of being given the Great Commission, is not only to fear God ourselves and to embrace the gospel, but to also work at spreading this message of the gospel and supporting those who do. To pass along the warning that this text gives for sinners and also the good news of the forgiveness of sins that does come, that is there in Jesus' name. That others might flee the wrath to come and not fall into a false security in their sin, seeing judgment delayed. Indeed, wickedness promises much that it cannot deliver. Eventually, death comes, and then it is a judgment. And those who fear the Lord will do well, as Solomon says. By God's grace, those who trust in Christ will be vindicated and forever with the Lord. Let us never forget this and always see that the life of wickedness with all that it holds forth to mankind is nothing but a fool's bargain. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess our sin, our, our utter uncleanness in every way before you, our great need for your provision of righteousness, for your provision of propitiation, forgiveness of our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that every soul here would embrace Christ by faith, would fear you and cling to Jesus. Father, break off any spell of sin that any is under, that this, these empty promises would be seen for what they are, just that, empty. Father, I pray for joy in our lives. I pray for joy even in the midst of frustration and life under the sun. Father, be merciful to us. Calm our hearts. Calm our fears. Steady our souls. Give us confidence in who you are. Father, we thank you that you are worthy, that you've given us your word, that while you ultimately are incomprehensible, you've given us true words in which we can, which we can truly know you by. Father, as was prayed earlier, we know that we could worship you for all of eternity, and those who are in Christ will, we will worship you for all eternity and still not exhaust the praise that you do, such as your being. Father, I pray that we would again rejoice that you'd give strength to each person here for whatever battles they are enduring. Grant joy. Father, we pray that you would bless the rest of our time together as we worship and then as we eat together as well. Unite our hearts with those who can't be here today for various reasons. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.